And it still kind of gives me a weird feeling when I think about it. But it wasn't that bad. Yet another thing that will gross my family out that I do. So um, I'm going to start this way. Okay, so that's a little thing called finishing the gestalt. Things that we hear that we automatically finish. And if you were just to do this, you were to go, um, I don't know, just go... And a lot of you probably wanted to finish that. You know, maybe it's the OCD in all of us, or maybe we all have that little bit of us uh, who are, are kind of focused on the details. But there is something in us that when we hear a familiar story, something that we are used to, uh, a lot of times we just tend to want to finish it ourselves. And today's story is one of those stories, I believe. It's a story that we are all very familiar with. Um, it is a story that we've heard probably many, many different times. Uh, it is a parable. Uh, but as parables usually go, there is a twist in every parable. They don't typically go the way that they um, that, that we would suspect. Uh, there's a little twist in them. Uh, the Good Samaritan is one of those parables. It conjures up lots of different images, I'm sure, with each and every one of us. Probably helpers or uh, people stepping in when no one else will. Um, you know, there are hospitals and organizations that are labeled Samaritan in some way, shape, or form. Uh, usually it talks about, you know, helping in some way. Um, because it's been discussed in so many different ways, we've kind of developed, I would say, a little bias in how we approach this particular story. Um, in this series, we're talking about impurity. We're talking about this idea of being unclean and how do we manage both ends of that spiritual spectrum. And today, what I'm hoping is that this story shows us that no matter what, um, no matter how much we think we know, there's usually more to this story. There's usually more to the person than we may know. Let's pray and we will begin. Heavenly Father, thank you for the day. Thank you for bringing us together and for allowing us the opportunity to study your word in holy community. Lord, I pray that you would be with us this morning. Rest our, our spirits, ease our hearts. Lord, I know. Um, that we all come to this place with, uh, from different uh, backgrounds, with different levels of uh, anxiety and joy and excitement. And I pray this morning you would help us to all uh, help one another and to love one another. Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning to have ears that are ready to hear, hearts that are open. Uh, thank you for this opportunity. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, we're in Luke chapter 10, if you want to follow along. It's also in your app. There is a note section in your app. I'm going to start this way. New Orleans is a very richly textured and historic town. Uh, there are lots of things to see if you go to New Orleans. Now, I've only, honestly, I've only been to New Orleans on the internet. Isn't that sad? I've never, never been there, right? Uh, I've never been to New Orleans in person, but I've always wanted to go because I've seen the pictures. I've seen the history. I've seen all of it. There's homes that are just unbelievable, like this one right here. This is one of those famous homes, apparently, in New Orleans that sometimes people actually come to visit. Um, you know, this is another home just on, on the street. I mean, imagine how awesome and cool it would be to live in this particular home. Actually, it wouldn't be at all because this home is haunted. So you may not want to live there. But there are several other homes that are beautiful. And uh, they, they've got 
they've got history, they've got stories attached, they probably have, you know, people that, that you know, care for the play. It just, there's a lot of great things, but there's also homes that you would probably tend to just ignore. For example, this home in particular is in the French Quarter. And if you were to see this home, you might just pass on by it without a second thought. Might even just look at it and you might actually go to the other side of the street because it looks a little sketchy and there are some parts of the French Quarter that I've heard are a little dangerous. That's just me. I don't know if it's true. If you're watching from New Orleans, I'm sure it's a lovely place. But if you were walking next to this home, you'd probably think, huh, eh, I'm just going to walk to the other side and I'm a little worried. But what happens typically is that our minds tend to finish what we start. We tend to finish the story without really getting to know more of it. Um, but if you actually were to look a little deeper at this home, you know, looks aren't always what they seem. If you were to actually just look a little deeper at this home and, and, and actually go in and see, then you might just be surprised at the unexpected beauty inside of this seemingly dilapidated and run-down home. Because really, most people, all we will look at, all we will linger long enough to see is this. Most of us will only see an unclean, run-down, offensive exterior as we quickly pass by. And most will not ever think to look more deeply. So keep this in mind as we approach this story in Luke chapter 10. We're going to begin in verse 25. So let's go ahead and begin reading here. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? He replied. How do you read it? He answered. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all of your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who's my neighbor? Now the story Jesus is about to tell is in direct response to this question. Who is my neighbor? It's a loophole question. And usually whenever you hear these questions in Scripture, it's not the people asking, so, so who, who all can I love? Who all am I supposed to love? What they're really asking is, okay, so who do I not have to love? Who can I legally exclude? Whenever Peter asks, how many times should I forgive? What he's really asking, what's the limit? When, when can I stop forgiving? And so... In this particular question, he's, ap he's asking a loophole question that usually justify ourselves. And we still ask these questions ourselves, don't we? You know, these what if type of questions. You know, in, in moral dilemmas, we usually find ourselves asking these questions. Sometimes it's about the poor. We ask these questions, even though, so in, in Matthew, uh, Jesus specifically said, he says, give to those who ask and do not refuse those who want to borrow from you. Very, very clearly, Jesus says this. But we still ask loophole questions to justify ourselves, and sometimes justify why we don't give to those people who ask. We ask questions like, well, what if, what if, uh, what, how do I know they're not going to use the money to go buy booze or to buy drugs? You know, what, what if they don't know how to handle the money very well? Loophole 
questions. What if, what if, what if? And that's what this lawyer is doing here. And in this instance, what he's doing is he's asking Jesus to tell him, which people can I legally exclude? Do I not have to love? So Jesus uses this brilliant rabbinical teaching technique where he answers a question with a story. So this is what he says. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Now we tend to stop, we kind of finish the gestalt here. These stories are... You know, whenever they were telling stories back then, they're usually easy to predict. You know, a priest, a rabbi, and a minister going to a bar, right? <laughs> you know those jokes, right? So a lot of times we tend to finish those little stories. So they thought, I'm sure, okay, you have a priest and a Levite, and the next person's probably going to be an Israelite. Now, the priests were a holy tribe from the tribe of Levi. They were set apart as holy people. They actually had the job of serving God in the temple or in some capacity surrounding temple worship. They were born into the priestly line of Aaron, and they were set apart. They were working priests. And if you were a priest, you were set apart. You were set apart for a specific purpose. You were part of a holy group. To serve God was your job. Levites were also set apart. Now, just because you were a Levite doesn't mean that you were also a priest. Now, you could be because that's, that's your line. None of them may have been active priests, but they were all seen as set apart. They were holy, they were educated, they were raised differently than the average Israelite. And when it comes right down to it, both of these people should have known better. And I've heard the argument, and I've even probably preached this, where um, they didn't go and touch the people because they were unclean and they didn't want to be unclean. But what I have discovered is that's not necessarily the case. Because in the, uh, so there's something, there's the Torah, and then there's the Talmud. And the Talmud is this uh, commentary by these rabbinical scholars and Jewish leaders during the captivity where they kind of talked about the Torah, what was, what wasn't legal. And this is still in, in, in use and discussed and all. Um, but in the Talmud, there is a specific provision that allows you to render aid when it's dire, when, you, when they need it, to save a life. It's called, well, where is it at? It's called Pekua Nefesh or rescuing a life. This takes precedence over anything you're doing. It could even take precedence if it's on the Sabbath. So if it's on the Sabbath and you have to rescue a life, you are more than free to do that. Which lets you know just how stubborn and rooted in their positions those Pharisees were who were arguing at Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. It doesn't make sense. Because he's doing peku and afesh, which is what has been allowed so rescuing a life becomes most important. So these two men, women, who went, one priest, one Levite, I don't know if the Levite was a man or a woman, doesn't say, but they should have known better. But they passed right on by. They just simply didn't stop. 
Now the story might at this point to this lawyer be predictable. You know, the hero was obviously not a priest, obviously not a Levite. So the logical conclusion was Jesus was going to make the hero an Israelite. The little guy was going to be the hero of the story. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? Now, if you're like me, when you get to this side of the, this point of the story, your brain kind of goes on autopilot. And you start filling all the gaps and, you know, you start thinking, yeah, I need to be like the Samaritan. I need to help people in the ditch, which is all true. It's all good. But I look at it from a personal perspective a lot of times. And more often than not, I put myself in the role of one of these characters. And, you know, the humble me always puts myself in the role of the Samaritan because I'm so nice and helpful to people. Maybe whenever you're really humble or you're feeling, you know, maybe repentant, you put yourself in the role of one of these priests or Levites. Because how often does that happen? We do that too. But how often do we put ourselves in the role of the person in the ditch. We're not too fond on getting a lot of help from people. We're usually, as Americans, we're going to be self-sufficient, self-sustaining. We don't like to see ourselves as needy. At least that's just me. But what if this was you? What if you were this person in the ditch and you are left for dead, ravaged, by evil people, wounded, beat up. Who do you hope stops to help you? And what if the only one, the only person who stopped to help you was your enemy? What happens when Jesus makes the enemy the hero of the story? How do we respond to that? Now, if you've been in church for any length of time, you've heard about the Samaritan and the Jewish relationship. Uh, The Samaritans were descended from the northern tribes, the ten tribes, and they were mixed in with the Assyrian people and about five other nations. So what they had become over these hundreds and hundreds of years was a reminder to the Jewish people of what happens when you refuse to follow God. They were um, repulsive. I can't say that harshly enough. I don't know what else to say. They, when you looked at a Samaritan or were close to Samaria, you had a visceral reaction. The religion was just as distorted, but they still claimed to follow God. And the Jewish people were like, what are you talking about? Y'all have no idea what you're doing. But the Samaritans had little to no love for the Jewish folks either. Some of these instances um, ended up in violence, bloodshed. There were a few little, you know, battles here and there. You know, you had uh, acts of terrorism, you may call it, on both sides. But it's mostly just bad blood between the two. Hatred, pure hatred between the two. 
In the chapter before this one, in chapter 9, Jesus wants to go through, this is the moment when he sets his face to Jerusalem. He's going to Jerusalem to die for the the world. And um, he wants to go through a Samaritan village. And uh, they say no. Say, we don't want you. So James and John say, hey, can we bring down fire from heaven and destroy them? This is John, the author of John, the one that Jesus loved, the nice love one another guy. He wants to destroy this whole village because they said no to hospitality. Hatred, even among the disciples, pure hatred for a group of people. I mean, I can imagine Jesus' disciples listening to the story going, what? Samaritan? You told it wrong, Jesus. This kind of hatred still exists. Now, we see the more obvious ones. Our American history, we've seen a lot of hatred. The Hatfields and McCoys, you know, now it's kind of a joke. But back then, it was serious. Not a lot of people died, but a lot of people, ooh, they, they, were, they were in pain for a lot of years. There's that feeling you get when you're with someone you just hate. Racist violence, hatred for generations. No matter how we want to look at it now, it was hatred, y'all. In Rwanda, Africa, we've heard that story about the Hutus and the Tutsi tribe. In the mid-90s, there was a moment. They never really liked each other. Um, Tutsis, sometimes they were in, in, in power and they sometimes exerted their dominance a little bit more forcefully than they should. But the balance was unequal. There was a lot more Hutus than there were Tutsis. And there was a moment in time that ignited everything. And in a period of three months, 800,000 people were dead. Countless more were forever maimed. They were raped, tortured. And then after, after a period of maybe eight to ten years, whenever these murderers who had confessed and spent time in jail started coming back, they started coming back to their same villages, moving into the homes that they used to own, which were right next door to the Tutsis that they had hurt and wounded and maybe even killed family members. I don't, there's stories of forgiveness there, but can you imagine? There's still hatred. The band U2, one of my favorite bands, they have a, a song that they did in the 80s called Where the Streets Have No Name. Um, it's a timeless song, really. I have a link to it in your app if you want to listen to it a little later. Not in church, please. But you'll hear the lyrics, and if you know the background, it makes sense to you. It makes sense to me. Northern Ireland has suffered for generations from conflict between Catholics and Protestants. It may not be as dire now, but it's still pretty fresh. In fact, in that particular city, in the city of Belfast, um, you can identify the part of town by the name of the street. So if you happen to live on this street... People know, oh, you're Catholic. If you happen to live on this street, people know, oh, you're Protestant. 
And when people label you and whenever they hear you and they see where you live, the hatred, they don't even know you, but they know you live on that street. You are my enemy. So Bono, in his wisdom, writes this beautiful song and imagines a place where the streets have no name. Where people are not enemies based on their color or creed or Protestant or Catholic or their home and housing situation. How low do we have to be to hate someone because they live on a street? But it happens. The question I have for you is who is your enemy? Some people know who their enemies are. They know very clearly. Of course, we live in a country that we don't have a whole lot of enemies. But there are probably more than we realize. Personally. I think a good test would be to ask yourself, if you were in dire need of help, let's say you had um, a, heart a heart incident and you were on the floor wherever, who was the very last person you would want to give you CPR? <laughs> let's just take, take a moment, because apparently some people are already imagining some people. Who is the very last person you would want to give you CPR? With that in mind, let's recast this story with some of today's possibilities. The story of the good Muslim. Uh, Jesus, don't you know what they do? The story of the good BLM protester. The story of the good illegal immigrant who's had brushes with the law. The story of the good liberal. The story of the good far right-wing conservative. The story of the good transgendered person. The story of the good atheist. The story of the good fill in the blank with any opposing anything that's coming to mind. If you want to know who you might consider an enemy, first consider those people who, whenever you mention them, bring up this visceral reaction. Then consider those people that we've already written off or condemned or those people who bring you to anxiety or panic because the, the Samaritans were not just an irritation they were not just a concern they were an enemy one of many for the Jews but a close one because they lived right in the middle of the Jewish country but for some reason the, the, the Samaritans were deeply hated by these people maybe because they were the Jews were in vain hoping that one day they'd come to their senses maybe they'd, they'd uh, you know, ask for forgiveness maybe as a group they'd come to the Jewish leaders and say we know what has happened we know where we've come from please just consider including us we will do what you want they weren't going to do that They had written them off, not just because they weren't, you know, um, they weren't part of them. They had written them off because they were enemy. They weren't content with just dismissal of them. They wanted them to hurt and to suffer and to know how wrong they really were. And so Jesus answers this 
man's original question by asking the same question. Which of these three was the neighbor to the man who fell into the hand of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, well, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him to go and do likewise. And the lawyer couldn't even bring it. He couldn't even say the word Samaritan. Who's the neighbor? He couldn't even say it. That's how much hatred was there. And Jesus tells him to go and do the same? Now, if this man in the ditch were a Jewish man, then it only goes to assume that the Samaritan would have been the very last person he had wanted to help him. And more importantly, the Samaritan probably had very little love in his heart for the Israelite. But the Samaritan, for some reason, shows mercy. The same Samaritan, the people that were considered, well, weren't even considered at all, but if you did consider him, you, you consider him as the enemy or as unclean, forever unclean, unsavable. This, this unclean, unsavable person that everyone has written off is still our neighbor. And Jesus doesn't condemn him or judge him or his belief system or his ideology. He doesn't do that. He simply identifies this Samaritan, this enemy, as our neighbor. And in this one moment, he's a helpful neighbor. But this Jewish leader could only see what was on the outside. He couldn't see, didn't once care to look any deeper than what was on the outside. Didn't even want to see what was on the inside, what he was capable, this man was capable of being, what this man was capable of doing. And I think the story tells us that we do not know what's in someone else's heart. We don't know. As much as we want to finish the gestalt, as much as we want to put a story on them, we do not know what's in another person's heart. We don't even know their capacity for change. We don't know how God has been working in their life, but he has. We don't know the lengths that God has gone to reach these people. In this moment, when we're drawn to hate some people, and in those moments when we can't see past their faults or imperfection, we need to remember that there is always more than meets the eye. I mean, God is still doing what he can to show this person the love the extent of his love and grace and mercy. And you know what? Perhaps he's hoping to do that through us in this moment when we're face to face with our enemy. So my encouragement to you is do not write people off just because we might see them as unclean or as even our enemy because our purpose is to love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it is to love others, all others. And hatred is toxic, has no place in Christianity, has no place in the family of God. And for the, for the follower of Jesus, there's no room for it. Because once you let it in, it will get everything else out because it does not like to spend time with anything else. Hatred is toxic. It will only further wound us. And as Dr. Amy Jill Levine says, she's a, a Jewish uh, professor of New Testament, 
She says this, judging people on the basis of their religion or ethnicity or anything else will leave us dying in a ditch. The Samaritan was the neighbor of this story, and Jesus tells us not only to love him as you love yourself, but to be merciful even to those people you might consider an enemy. Heavenly Father, thank you for this moment. I pray that you would help us to hear these words. Teach us what we need to learn. Help us to be people who are merciful. And in those moments when we are encountering someone who we may consider an enemy, Lord, I pray that you would help us to know that there is more going on, that you are, you are doing things with them just as you are doing with us. Help us to be people who are concerned, Lord, not only with justice for ourselves, but justice for others. Help us to be people who can be merciful, even when it's painful and difficult. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's all stand together. Uh, if you need prayer, we have elders across the room. I'll be down front. We would love to speak with you. Let's sing together.